0: can uh, open up your copy of the scriptures, if you have one, to Deuteronomy chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. I um, wanted to share a couple things before I really start the sermon, uh, though. Uh, one is just, if you are a college-age young man or woman, uh, you may already know this, but if not, I wanted to let you know before, right at the end of the service. Um, but we have a lunch even today, uh, right after the service, if you want to stick around, whether you were planning to or not. Uh, we do those typically on the third Sunday of the month, and we usually do them uh, at people's houses in the community, members of our church. Uh, for various reasons, that wasn't possible this month, So, but we still wanted to have a gathering for you all. So we're going to do it in room 112, which is over on this side of the building, right immediately after the church service. Uh, we had time to fellowship together, uh, to catch up from after break, uh, and to spend time in, in fellowship together. So we'd love to have you stick around for that uh, immediately after today. And then the other thing I wanted you to know, uh, we were waiting until the new year until we thought everybody was really back from breaks and whatnot. Uh, But we're wanting to try to uh, do a memory verse together uh, as a church family as we go through this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We picked a couple verses that are some of the most, probably the most memorized scriptures in all of the Bible, honestly. Uh, When you think through Christians who've memorized this, Jews who've memorized this, is a few verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we have some little uh, cards even at our resource center if you want to take one of those and, and put it on a mirror or somewhere where you'll see it often that you could take that. With you and seek to just read it, see it, meditate on it, get it into your hearts. But I'm going to put this up. Have us put this up on the screen. If you can see this. This time, I'm not expecting you remotely to have a single word of this memorized. So we want—we're just going to read it as a starting place. That's a good way to memorize stuff in general. Just read it and keep reading it and keep reading it. So we're going to do reading number one of that, which hopefully will be one of many for you to do at home uh, and to, to commit this text to memory. So I want us to read this together, and we'll do this maybe every few weeks together. Uh, read, I'm, we may even like hide words, like a teacher or something, in weeks to come and see if you got some of those those words down past but now they're all up there. I just want us to read this together uh, and then we will turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. So let's read this. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Amen. May we work to commit that to memory uh, in the months, uh, weeks ahead as we continue through Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 12 here in just a moment. These are going to be the words of Moses. As we go through this book, I'll explain some more what Deuteronomy is. But these are going to be the words of Moses. And if you know much about Moses, if you've read much of his story in the scriptures, uh, you would probably agree with this statement that he had some pretty wild family stories that he could tell uh, from when he was a baby uh, that he may not remember but that were true of him all the way through when he's 120 giving this speech in Deuteronomy. There's a lot of family stories that were pretty wild for him, Um, but I want to tell you one very briefly that'll set up why why I think what we're going to read in today's text is so important even to Moses. It's actually a story about two of his nephews. Uh, They had cool names. Uh, Their names were Nadab and Abihu, Uh, and you may not know much about them, uh, but these were the sons of Moses' brother Aaron, And Aaron, if you know anything about him, he was the first high priest of Israel. He was the one who was given that task to serve as the high priest of Israel, the very first one. And his sons were supposed to serve with him. They were supposed to serve as priests as well, and they did. Um, These two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had started serving as priests with their dad. And God had given very particular instructions uh, to Israel and to the priests in particular about when people bring sacrifices, these are the types of sacrifices I want them to bring. This is how they're to be offered. This is not how they're to be offered. This is what you should do. This is how you go about worshiping me. Uh, But if you read, you could read this story for yourself later. It's just a couple verses long. It's in Leviticus chapter 10. This would have happened 40 years before what we're about to read today. But in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu did something that may have seemed innocent to us, but was not insignificant to God. Uh, What these two guys did, and we don't know exactly what was going on in their hearts, but in their priestly service, they took their two censers, which if you don't know what those are, they're like those metallic things that you'll still. And some religions today see priests like swinging around, like they have smoke coming out of them where they're burning something and incense or smoke is coming out of them. They had those, these two guys, Nadab and Abihu. And in them, they put this incense that was not what God had commanded them to put in there uh, and not what God had commanded them to bring before him. And supposedly or presumably they started swinging those things around in the, the presence of the Lord and this is what happened when they did that. I, you, may, you may know the story, but if you don't, you may imagine. There, what would God do in response to that? What God did was, in our estimation, was surprising, startling. What God did was from that tabernacle, that, that tent where God dwelled, where they would have been nearby, he sends fire out from it. Not just to like blow them back. Not just to like knock them down and kind of give them a wake-up call. He sent fire out from it to consume them. That's what happened. I I don't know how much, I don't say that to scare you, but I I say that to help us see that God, this is the way I would summarize what the message God was communicating to Moses' nephews and to the people who would have watched it, was this, that God doesn't just care that he is worshipped, but he cares how he is worshipped, right? It, it, it's not just God will take any and every form of worship that people are willing to offer Him. God cares deeply and always has about how He is worshipped, and when He tells us how to worship Him, we would be wise uh, to actually do and wor- do what He says to worship Him how He says to worship Him. And so, this what we're going to read today is the words of those men's uncle, Moses. Uh, who had seen that happen, who had written it down for all of God's people for all ages, and now we're going to hear him in today's text speaking to the nation of Israel, telling them this message that they need to worship God on God's terms, that they're to worship God as God says. And this is a lesson every generation needs to learn, I would say. The one that was about to go into the promised land needed to relearn it. We need to relearn it today, that we worship God how God says to worship him. So what this is, Deuteronomy is like a farewell speech of Moses. He's 120, he's about to die, but his nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land at long last. After 40 years of wandering, uh, he's giving this farewell speech that is most of the book of Deuteronomy. We've also seen as we've gone through this that Deuteronomy is kind of like in written form at least is like a treaty of sorts between an ancient king and those who would live or rule Beneath him, like an agreement of this is our backstory, then this is how we're going to deal with each other. This is how we're going to relate. And what the section that starts today in what we call Deuteronomy 12 was this middle section, which would have been the biggest chunk of those treaties that people, scholars, have referred to as like the specific stipulations of this covenant, of this treaty. Like these are, we're going to start to get into the specifics of how we're going to deal with each other. What we do, what we don't do. Uh, this is where it starts. And where Moses begins, this section of specific rules, specific stipulations between God and Israel is with proper worship, telling them this is how you worship God. This is how God has told us to worship him. So I'm going to read this whole chapter. Believe it or not, this is a shorter text than what we've been doing the last few weeks, uh, but I'm going to read the entirety of Deuteronomy 12, and then we're going to walk back through it and see what God was communicating to those Israelites, and then we'll see what relevance and bearing that has to us, because it has a lot. So, Follow along with me as best as you can, Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'm going to go from verse 1 all the way down through the end at verse 32. So Moses continues his speech saying this. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you, the unclean and the clean made of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who's within your town. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he's promised you, and you say, I'll eat meat, because you crave meat, you may eat whatever you desire. If the place of the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire." Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings... You shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. This is the word. A lot in there. Uh, I want you to consider for a moment how big of a shift the nation of Israel was is about to have. Uh, how big of a change they were about to experience, okay? They, they were about to finally go into the promised land. And there's going to be some really sweet blessings that came from it, but there are going to be some deep challenges as well. And you see both of those alluded to here that uh, just think of some of the blessings they were about to experience in this shift of going into the promised land. Okay, so like in verse 1, he says, he's talking about the land that God has given you to possess. This nation, uh, hundreds of thousands of people at this point in time, they had lived for centuries, for generations, either in the slave quarters of Egypt or in the tents in the wilderness, right? They, They had lived in these places, but now they're finally going to possess land. They're going to have a place to actually live. And another blessing is that they're going to move as a nation from a a group that has only experienced things like subjection and slavery and instability and threats even to their existence. They're going to move from that sort of existence to a land that like verses 9 and 10 call a land of rest. A land of inheritance. They're going to have an inheritance from the Lord. And even, I think this would have been a glorious word for them to hear, they're going to have safety. Verse 10. So they're about to have this blessing of finally going into the land. But it's not only going to be good. And it's not all just going to be roses. There's going to be challenges as they go into the land too. Uh, Some that are alluded to in this text are, are things like this. This nation of people, at least for the previous four decades as they've wandered in the wilderness led by God, they have done so as a unit, right? A very large unit, but as a unified camp that was centered around the tabernacle, that was all in the presence of God and in the presence of each other. Uh, But as they go into this land, God's going to allot land in different places, and now this nation is going to be spread out right? They're going to be in all these different places, in all these different locations, and it could lead to division between the different tribes of Israel. You see in this text that it's going to at minimum lead to there's a distance now between them and the place where God is dwelling, right? They're not in the camp anymore where they can just see where the tabernacle is. They're going to be out of sight. It could be out of mind, but also a challenge that they're going to come into in this land is that They are going to go from being a nation of just being around fellow Israelites. At least people had some regard for Yahweh, some regard for the Lord. And they're about to enter into this land where even if they kill off everyone, even if they judge them as God tells them to for the sins of the Canaanites, even if they do that, they're still going to have before their faces these places of worship of false gods, false deities that the Canaanites have had for centuries and they're going to be tempted to follow after those practices. They're going to be tempted to modify their worship of the Lord and start worshiping like the people who lived in this land before them. That's going to be a temptation. The end of the text talks about how they could be ensnared to follow after those ways and those gods, right? And just like the Garden of Eden in all its glory had the temptations of the serpent, promised land of canaan with all its glory is going to have the temptations of the false gods and the false worship that the god's people could be tempted to run after and moses knows these blessings but these challenges that are coming and he tries to prepare his people for it again in this part of his talk by reminding them how important it is as they go into this new setting to worship god on god's terms to worship God how God has said he wants to be worshiped. To not just do what they think is right. To not just follow their own impulses, but worship God as God says. No accommodating, no compromising, no shifting. Okay? And what you see in in this text, at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, Moses is kind of bookending this text by making a a command about how they're not to worship God, right? Like he he starts strong with that and then he ends with that as well in this chapter saying, don't do this, like avoid this, like get rid of these things, right? And there's similar language if you put your eyes on verse 4. And then all the, if they're on the same page even, which is hard with text like today, uh, and then look at verse 31 as well. There's very similar language, very simple language that Moses says that's the same near the beginning in verse 4 and near the end in verse 31 where he says to the Israelites, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Like there's a, even if they're trying to worship the right God, he's saying there's a wrong way you can try to worship him. Don't do that. Like, stay away from those practices, those paths of trying to worship God. Don't worship him the ways he has not said to be worshipped. And that's why at the start of the text, like verses 2 and 3, Moses is telling them in these very strong verbs, these very strong commands. Like, when you go into this land and you see these high places where they worship their gods, and you see these places under these fertile trees where they worship their gods, He tells them, he uses verbs in verses two and three, like destroy those places. Right? He says to tear them down. He says to dash them in pieces. He says to burn them down, to chop them down. He's saying, have nothing to do with those places of worship and those practices of worship that they did there. Don't do it. Don't worship your God in that way and if we think somehow that maybe these Canaanites they just were misguided maybe it wasn't that bad like why is Moses so serious about cutting all this stuff down and burning this stuff down I just remind you what he said at the end of this text today he said that their worship of their false gods had led them to do every abominable thing that the Lord hates even killing their kids, like even in their worship of these gods, bringing their kids as sacrifices to these false gods to try to appease them. Moses is saying, do not go there. Do not worship in those places. Do not worship in those ways. And remembering this is a treaty, like a document between God and his people. It's like God is saying, I don't want any rivals. Like, don't entertain rival gods, rival ways of doing this. You worship me and me alone, and you worship me how I tell you to worship me, not in whatever way you see fit. So Moses starts and ends by saying what not to do, like, don't follow the practices of the Canaanites but the bulk of this chapter uh, which I want to point out a few things is Moses telling them that this new generation how they are to worship God when they go into this land this new setting these are the things I do want you to do to worship me these are the things I do want you to engage in as you try to worship me in the land of Canaan and we'll walk through these briefly but the four things that you see him telling them to do as far as worshiping God is he tells them where to go he tells them what to bring He tells them who to bring and he tells them how to engage. And so we'll walk through each of those one at a time. So first God tells, through Moses, tells these Israelites for proper worship of him in the land of Canaan, he tells them where to go to do it right? Uh, You probably noticed as I was reading this text uh, that five different times in this, just this one chapter, Moses uses this phrase or something very, very similar to it, where he describes this place that he calls the place that the Lord your God will choose. Did you hear that several times? He he told them, go there. He didn't even know exactly where it was going to be yet, but he's telling them, God's going to pick a place Or places even where he wants us to go to worship him. It's not going to be on those mountains like they had. It's not going to be by those trees. But he's going to show us these places where we're supposed to go to worship him. It happens five times that phrase is used in this one chapter. And we know as people who have the rest of the Bible and the rest of God's revelation. That the main primary place that eventually God would show them in the land to go and to worship him was the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the temple of God that God commanded them to build him a house there. That ultimately, eventually, would be where they would go to worship God and to bring their sacrifices. But there were even these kind of intermediate places that that God gave to them as well that you can see in the Old Testament. There's places you may have seen before of like Gilgal and Shechem and Shiloh and these places where God's people could still come to those places that God had shown them and make offerings and sacrifices but God was telling them to worship him that they were to go there. That they were to not just worship him anywhere they saw fit, but they were to go to these particular places that he had shown them. And this was important. You see a few places in this text that it was important that they go there because that's where God was going to dwell. Right? It wasn't just like he was dwelling over this entirety of this land. But if you look at verse 5, he says that this place was going to be where he would make his habitation. Right? and where he would put his name. There, there's going to be some specialness about these places that, that God told them to go. And even three times in verses 7 and 12 and 18, as, as Moses describing what they would do in those places, he describes them as happening before the Lord right, like eating before the Lord, like in ways that they couldn't just at their houses or in the scattered regions of Israel. So he tells them where to go to worship him, like come here, like these are the places I'm telling you to worship me. But second, he tells them what to bring with them, right? As they come to worship, he, he tells them, look at verse 11. If you look at verse 11, uh, very simply, uh, Moses says to them, Uh, In the middle of that verse, he says about these places, he says, there you shall bring all that I command you, right? And then he starts mentioning and listing off kind of a summary of what those things are that they should bring with them, but it's everything that he commands them right? It's not just whatever they want. It's not just like, oh, we think God would like this, or like, we could bring this with us, and we can just like Nadab and Abihu, we can swing these things around. Like, it was God saying, bring what I tell you to bring. Like, when you come to worship me, you bring me what I, I told you to. And so, he mentions things like burnt offerings and sacrifices, and tithes, and contributions, and vow offerings, and I don't have time to explain what all those were. They would have had much more thorough instruction about that already written down for them from back at Mount Sinai, but he's saying, you all those things I told you to bring for sacrifice and offering, bring that. And don't bring other stuff, like bring what I have said to bring with you. And this was not their own guesses about what they thought God would like, they were telling they were bringing to him what he had told them to bring It'd be like we just passed through christmas it's, it's usually a much safer thing to get somebody a gift off of their wish list, right? Than to just guess, right? At least you know, oh, okay, they've already told me they want this. Or like when somebody gets married, get them something off their registry. Like they've said, this is what I want. Like if you're just guessing, you might give them something they re-gift to somebody else, something they already have, they don't want. Like we even as humans give people from the things that they've asked us to give. God has told them, bring me this. And he says, that's what you should bring me. Don't bring me other stuff. Okay, so he tells them what to bring. Third thing that we could, I think we could miss in this text is in proper worship, he tells them who to bring with them. Not just what to bring with them, but he tells them who to bring with them. I'd have you know a couple of things in here. If you look at verse 7, As he's imagining them having come to this place or these places with their items that he told them to bring. He says, there you shall eat before the Lord your God and there you shall rejoice, you and your households in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And later, down, if you look down even in verse 12, this is a repetitive text because this is a talk Moses was giving, so he'll like say one thing and then kind of say it similar. Down in verse 12, he's saying a very similar thing about like you and your household should do this together. But he includes things in verse 12 like your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite, which I wish I had with which I wish I had more time to explain what that's about. But he's saying your whole household, everybody, bring them with you. Like, don't just send a delegate, right? Like, don't just send a representative to make the journey to the place that I'll show you. Bring everybody. Right? Like everybody is supposed to come to worship. And this is a beautiful thing, I think, to see children, whether young or old, servants uh, coming together with their entirety of their household to come to worship God together. The Canaanites we saw in this text, they brought their kids, right, before their gods to kill them. Like for those kids to become sacrifices to their gods. God is saying no like that is not how I operate like bring your children bring your households to observe sacrifice like to actually live and eat with you before me like bring them to worship me your whole household so he says where to go what to bring he says who to bring and then the last thing I want to point out about commanding proper worship to them is he tells them how to engage in those acts of worship and he tells them to do it joyfully If you look at this, again, this is repetitive, but it happens three times in verse 7, in verse 12, and in verse 18. As Moses is commanding them to bring these offerings, these sacrifices, to bring them to these places, he tells them three times, you, as a command, as they're doing it, he says, you shall rejoice as you do. You shall rejoice as you bring these sacrifices, as you give of these tithes, as you give of these offerings. Do it rejoicing. And this, it, this should show us, even in the Old Testament, that God cares about the heart of worshipers. He is not a God who just cares about external conformity. Like, I'm just going to toe the line, follow the rule, and I, don't, I wish I didn't have to bring this thing. I wish I didn't have to come here, uh, but I'm going to do it because I'm told to. He's saying, do it with joy in your heart. Like rejoice as you bring these things before the Lord. God is not interested in just cold formality in worship, right? Like God is not just interested in cold obedience to his commands, but that we worship him joyfully. So he's told them where to go as they worship him, what to bring, who to bring. And he's told them how to engage even in that worship. There's other instructions he gives in this chapter we don't have time to get into. He gives them instructions in the second half of the chapter about like, what they're allowed to eat at home and what they're not allowed to eat at home. Uh, there's some different rules about the blood of animals uh, that he tells them about a few times here, even in this text. But the overarching point of this text and its message to the original hearers, I think, is very clear and straightforward. It's that God is to be worshipped on God's terms. God is to be worshipped how God says he wants to be worshipped. But the question that I hope goes through your heart as and mind as you read a text like this, as you approach the scriptures, is a question like this. Is like, I'm not an Israelite. I wasn't here at the Jordan River. I'm not even part of this treaty and this covenant that God was entering into with these people. So like what difference does this make to me like what why should I read it like why do I care about this what 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 can I learn from this uh, as someone who's outside of it in some ways but I want to to press in on a few things that I think are timeless principles that are carried for, that are shown in this text but that do carry forward even into our day and age even into this new covenant that we get to be part of in Jesus because the same general principle is true throughout the scriptures and always will be, that God is to be worshipped how God asks to be worshipped, how God commands to be worshipped. It was true then, at the edge of the Jordan, it is true in Winona Lake in 2022, like God is to be worshipped how God wants to be worshipped. And we are all tempted, even today, to do what he de- Moses describes in verse 8, where he says that the, hum- the human tendency of them then and us now, is to do whatever is right in our own eyes. Even as we try to worship God. We, well, there's things that seem right to me. There's things that seem appropriate, seem fitting, seem good. Surely God would like this, so let's do that. And we kind of launch into this whatever we think is right, whatever we think is good in the worship of God. But we are to worship how God says to be worshipped, not just to follow the impulses and inclinations of our hearts. So I want to briefly share four things that I think should be true about our worship even today, uh, as we seek to worship God as individuals and as a church. And they spring even from today's text and then from other texts that confirm this as time goes on. The first thing that I would say should be true of our worship, that should be true of your worship of God, if it's to be proper, is that our worship should be exclusive. That that our worship should be exclusive. God is to have no rivals, right? Like he is to have our ultimate primary allegiance. He is to be the center of our lives, right? And we think, a lot of times in today's day and age, we think we are so far removed from these ancient people who had these like physical idols they would worship and who would bow down to these things and sacrifice their kids to these gods that, that didn't even exist. We think that we are so far progressed beyond them that, that, that we would never uh, give in to idolatry as Christians. And I, I could not disagree more. Uh, we have become more slick we have become more discreet. We have become more comfortable with our worship of idols because those idols aren't often physical items, but they're more functional gods. They, they are things or people or aspirations that we have that we orient our life around that thing. That, that has become our ultimate aim. It has become our ultimate desire. Our pursuit of that thing, our, our craving for that thing drives everything we do because worship is worth ship right like it is ascribing worth to something it's saying this is valuable to me that's what i worship and in our lives we have many things that become rivals of god himself as far as our worth that we ascribe to them right like think through your own life do a inventory of your own life there's so many things there are things like wealth and the security that we think comes with that and things like health And the longevity of life that we long for that become ultimate pursuits in our life. There are things, especially when we're younger, but even when we're older, of popularity, social clout that we pursue. We can make functional gods of our own families. Like a good gift of God we can elevate to an ultimate gift of God. Our careers can become that way. Our pursuit of superiority and competition of various forms can start to drive the things that we do and the the priorities that we make in our life. And often what we do is what Moses describes down at the end of this chapter, where he he imagined them, if you remember this, kind of looking around at the land and thinking, how did they serve their gods? Like, what did they do? I'm going to do that. A lot of times, even as Christians, we look around at the world and think, what do they value? Like, what is good to them? Like, what's appealing to them? And even I'm going to maybe keep Jesus, but I'm going to run after that stuff too. Like, I'm going to give my life to pursue those things as well. And when we do that, those things become functional rivals of God himself. And our worship, we're told in this text, should be exclusive. Like, God should have no equal. He should have no rival in our life. He should be the sun around which everything else orbits, right? He should not be some planet or moon on the outskirts of our solar system. He should be the sun at the center that everything else revolves around. Our worship is to be exclusive, right? Second thing I would say is that our worship of God should be, and I didn't know exactly what word to use for this, but our worship of God should be corporate, or you might think like communal. If you think if corporate leads you to think of business, that's not what I mean. But corporate in the sense of like a body. It's to be done together with other people. Like worship is is not just something to be entered into as an individual. It can be entered into as an individual. But in this text today, I think we see this, right? That these people are given latitude to worship in some ways, even in their homes, even in their own towns. But they were commanded repeatedly to go worship together with other people like with their household and presumably with other households to come together to worship with the people of God. And I think we need to be careful in our day and age to not just settle primarily for private worship of God, as if that's all that matters. A lot of times we just gauge our spiritual health and maturity. Am I having my quiet time? Am I spending time just as an individual with God? That is important. You should be doing those things. But if you're doing those things and not gathering with the people of God, you are not worshiping God how God says to worship him. Like he says to worship him together with other people God and it's encouraging to me that you're here hearing this like it shows you at least today value assembling together with the people of God I just want to encourage you to fan that commitment up to to keep that commitment in your heart and make it stronger as I'm going to as much as up to me to worship with God's people over and over and over again that it this should be a value of the people of God and parents in the room who have children in your households, I want to encourage you as a fellow parent to prioritize bringing your children to worship, bringing them to the worship of God with God's people. That's commanded in this text of the people of Israel. It's commanded of us as well, even as New Testament believers, to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's assumed that they'll be with us, that we'll be teaching them even before they have faith we'll be teaching them what it looks like to worship God, what God's people do. And we're putting the kindling there that hopefully God will give fire to, but we should bring them to worship. And as another point of application for this, I would just say, in our day and age, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I think we need to resist the lure that has become even more common the last two years, for obvious reasons, to settle for online worship. Like to to think that that is a functional equivalent of being with the actual people of God, right? Like God commanded these people to leave their houses and go on journeys that would have been long and hard to go to worship with God's people. And it is a blessing that we have convenience of technology to be able to in real time see and hear God's people singing and to, to hear the word taught and hear prayers. But it is lesser. Like God command has always commanded his people to physically gather together. That is what a church is, is an assembly of people. And so I want to encourage us. The fact that you're here is encouraging. If you know people who have slowly, for whatever reason, started to drift away from physically gathering with their church family, talk to them. Don't berate them, but talk to them. Encourage them to prioritize coming and worshiping physically together with the people of God. So our, our worship should be exclusive. It should be corporate. Third thing, Our worship should be, I think in the spirit of today's text and the whole message, should be orderly. Again, I didn't know what word to use for this. Basically what I mean is even when we worship together today, we should be doing in our worship what God has told us to do. Like even when we assemble together, we do stuff on purpose here. Like we we do the things that God has commanded us to do in his word. And we don't just do the things that we do on Sundays because it's a tradition we've inherited. We don't just do it because, oh, we like these things. We don't just do it because we think God must like these things. We do the things we do because God's told us to do them, right? That's, that's why I could give you texts of these things, but I, I won't. But there are many of them throughout the New Testament especially. That's, there's commands to read Scripture aloud. There's commands to preach, right, and to hear teaching of the Word of God. There are commands to sing, together and to each other even there are commands to even bring offerings like second corinthians talks about there are commands to take communion together right there's commands first corinthians 14 that's why we have a ministry mic that i pray regularly that our members would share at and is that a part of what we're commanded to do is if the spirit lays upon our hearts things to share that we share those but we do them how god has told us to and not how god has told us not to Right? like We do the things we do in worship on purpose uh, we, because God has told us how to worship him. And so we intend very much for our worship to always be orderly uh, as a church family and to never abandon that. But the last thing as a point of application I want to show you from this text is not just that our worship should be orderly, but that it should be joyful, too. Like, there are sometimes we pit those against each other. Like, man, we're we're a church that really emphasizes order, and we just do things by the book. We button things up, and we don't care where your heart is. We don't care what your heart position and demeanor is. We just want to make sure we don't get anything wrong. Let's toe the line. And then other churches are, like, free for all. Like, we... Hopefully we get stuff right, but like mostly we want to follow our hearts and follow what we think would be good to do, what we think would be edifying, what we think would be pleasing to God. And we more emphasize joy or spirit as opposed to truth. But in today's text, I think we see both of those things, right? That the worship of God should be orderly, but it should be joyful too. Like our hearts should be moved as we worship God. We, they are commanded to rejoice in their worship right? And our, our hearts, as much as it's up to us, we should seek to be joyful as well, right? Joy is like this gladness or a good cheer of the soul that, that should be evident in the life of a believer, that should be expressed in our worship of God. Our worship of God should not just be like stoic, passionless, heartless, and just be of the mind. Like our, our worship of God should be filled with joy, should be fueled by joy right this does not mean i want to clarify this doesn't mean if you are feeling sorrow if you're feeling grief if you are feeling the weight of the brokenness of our world if you're confused by things it doesn't mean that you need to pretend that's not present in your heart right those things do they're probably present in many of you even this morning but the glory of the good news of jesus is that even amidst that Even as I acknowledge that, even as we express that together as a church family at times, that even as we do that, we also have joy. Like we also have a good cheer of soul because we know someday the sorrow will end. Like someday my Savior will return. And we get to remember that when we worship together. And even amidst sorrow and pain and grief and lament and confession and the brokenness of our will, we can and should also have joy in our worship. We can sing through tears with a smile on our face, if that's an image that you want to have in your mind. Like our worship should be joyful. And so God commands these things for our worship to be exclusive, right? To be corporate. He commands it, even of us today, to be orderly, to be joyful. One thing that may go through your mind is Nadab and Abihu, right? Like, we're supposed to worship a certain way. Like, God has told us how to do this. Like, and he set high bars of how we're to worship him, how we're to even worship him today shouldn't we how can we not be fearful then like if he sent that fire out to consume them shouldn't we like you might think be fearful that we may miss worship not m-i-s-s but just one s miss worship God do something wrong, have a wrong attitude of heart, and well, then what's He going to do? How's how's He going to relate to me if I worship Him the wrong way or with the wrong heart? Maybe I've even been doing that today. Like what? What's God's heart toward me? I want to share some really bad news with you, and then I want to share you some infinitely better news with you. Okay? Uh, bad news. This includes me. We're actually worse than Nadab and Abihu. Like, and we have more to fear even than what happened to them. Like, their fault, as best as I can tell, is that they sincerely tried to worship God but did it in the wrong way. A lot of times we're not even doing that. Like, we are not just misworshippers, misguided worshipers. We are traitors. Like, we are people often in our life who aren't even trying to worship God. Like, we, we are not even attempting to do it. And we deserve for our rebellion, for our treason against God. We deserve a lot worse than fire coming out from a tent and physical death. Like we deserve hell. As people who are created by this God but who spurn him, reject him, deny him and make ourselves gods and say I'm going to do what I want with my life. We deserve hell, not just fire from a tent and to be buried. We deserve judgment forever. That is incredibly bad news. That your situation may be worse than my situation is worse than Nadev and Abihu's. But here is the great (laughs) news and the good news. Is that God is merciful and gracious to traitors like us. That he is merciful and gracious and willing to forgive and to show grace to people who have failed to worship him entirely. Or who have worshipped him in ways that he didn't ask to be worshipped. God is rich and full of mercy towards people like us. Right? And he showed us that by sending his son into the world to reconcile traitors like us, bad, wrong, false worshipers like us to reconcile us to himself. Right? Jesus is God the son. He deserves worship. He had been receiving worship, right worship in heaven. Right? But he gave that up in a sense for a season to become one of us, to become a child, to grow into a teenager, into a man And Jesus has become both the sacrifice and the priest that we need to approach God rightly, hasn't he? Like you see both of those things talked about in this text. He's become the sacrifice, he's become the priest. These animal sacrifices that they were making, even if they made them rightly, guess what? Like Those sacrifices did nothing to atone for their sins. Like the blood of a bull or goat, the writer of Hebrews says, cannot atone for our sins. Cannot uh, appease the wrath of God. Only the sacrifice of a human being could. Something who's equal to us could. And that is what Jesus became at the cross. He became, he presented himself as a sacrifice to God the Father. He didn't bring an animal. He didn't bring a lamb. He brought himself. And he allowed himself to be put to death on the cross for our sins. To have that wrath of God, that fire that should have come down upon us. He let it come down upon himself. Suffered and died and was laid in a tomb so that the fire wouldn't come down upon us. So that we could be forgiven of our false worship and our treason. Right? And God the Father raised him up from the dead after that to show that this sacrifice worked. Like, I approve of this sacrifice. You know what? God was not bringing their bulls and goats back to life after they ate them, right? Like, he raised the Son of God to show this sacrifice was pure and right and good. I receive it. And anyone who comes to me through it. That is what God did in raising his son. And now he has brought him back to heaven where Jesus is right now, serving as a priest who will never die. Right? and who will never turn away people who come to him in faith. He's, he intercedes for us. He brings us to God the Father as a mediator, as the only mediator that there is between God and man. And so we can come to God the Father animal-less, right? titheless, offering-less. We, we have nothing to bring other than our sin. And if we're coming to God through Jesus, he receives us. Like he, he approves of us. He loves us. And if we try to come to God the Father with anything, pleading anything other than the sacrifice of Christ, what we are doing is what Nadab and Abihu did. We are bringing unauthorized fire, unauthorized sacrifice before God. God has told us, you can only come to me through my son. Come to me through him. And that we would be fools to not take him up on that that this free offer of forgiveness and grace that comes through Jesus, may we come to him through his son. God invites traitors like me and like you to come to him through his son. How can we not do that? How, How can we not call out to him? And then on top of that, he's told us how he wants to be worshiped. So why would we try to create our own way why do we try to come up with our own means we worship him how he calls us to worship him through his son and through the means that he's given us amen i'm going to invite you to stand i'm going to pray for us we're going to sing a closing song and i'm going to uh, leave you with the word of benediction after that let's pray together father in heaven uh, we we were made to worship we are worshiping all the time We are ascribing worth to things and to people and to pursuits every single moment of our life. God, help us to worship you rightly, to know that you have not just left us to our own devices to figure out how to do that, how to approach you, but that you've given us instruction. You've given us detail about how to approach you. Primarily that you've taught us to come to you and worship through your son thank you for the sacrifice of Christ but then you've also given us instructions practically about how you desire to be worshiped what is pleasing to you God one of those things is singing you've commanded us to do so we pray even as we sing another song that that we would worship you together corporately and that we would do it joyfully rejoicing in the good news and that you receive sinners like us And so we pray that you would be pleased even by what you're about to hear and the attitudes of our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.